Uh, scripture passage from this morning continues on from the passage read on Easter morning, the Gospel of John's account of that extraordinary morning. It leads right into a story of Thomas on, what ha- on the following Sunday. Hear the word of God from the 20th chapter of the book of John, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Sometimes it's that one thing that you do, that one thing that you say, that triumph, that error, that public gaffe, that thing that sticks with you, whether it reflects you or not. Oh my, you're the one that won the lottery. Oh, you're the one who everyone says is so nice. You're the loser who leaned over the wall and interfered with the Cubs fielder during that National League game. Remember that one? 
you saved that kid or made that billion or discovered that enzyme or was the first woman executive or tripped up those steps on the way to your graduation. This week, how will the rapper DMX or Prince Philip be remembered? Literature is filled with names that either describe or distort something about people. Patience, Prudence, Dudley Do-Right, Doubting Thomas. Ah, there you go. We're back to the sermon. Poor Thomas. Ever and forever left with that label, Doubting Thomas. At the time the Gospel of John was written, Christians in the Greek-speaking world called Thomas the Twin. His reputation didn't shift to doubter until the Gospel of John came out. We know that Thomas the Twin was one of the twelve disciples, and so he traveled with Jesus. John is more interested in Thomas than any of the other Gospels. In the Gospel of John, Thomas is consumed with knowing what Jesus is up to and figuring out where he fits in. When Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, it is Thomas who calls the others to get up and follow this Jesus. And later, Thomas asks Jesus to come clean. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth, and the life. In me you have seen God. Now, non-scriptural books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocalypse of Thomas say that Thomas received secret truths from Jesus. So Thomas is no stranger to going deep with Jesus and even challenging Jesus and asking others to go there with him. Later tradition says that Thomas died in India. Even today, the church in South India is called the Church of St. Thomas. But unless you're a Syro-Malabar Christian, which I don't think there are any among us today, uh, you probably know Thomas from the story I just read as the doubter. One moment ever enshrined, thanks to the author of John. And his doubting has gotten even more important in modern times, it seems. When we have put our version of modern doubt right on to Thomas. For in an age of science, we tend to interpret doubt as skepticism as doubting something that doesn't have direct evidence. And we make Thomas into our kind of mirror. I can accept that he died, but I can't accept something as outrageous or implausible as resurrection. We today hear him saying, prove it to me. So we see Thomas demanding freedom to experiment, putting his fingers in Jesus' side and touching the nail-marred hands. Maybe 
today, if this were to happen, he'd do a DNA test to check things out. To some, Thomas's doubt seems perfectly healthy. To others, Thomas's doubt seems overly suspicious, stubborn, arrogant, even lost. But if we let Thomas be more complicated and let Thomas have his due, some other things appear. I mean, what if Thomas's doubt is not a sign of some kind of hyper rationality at all? And what if it's not a sign of his weakness? What if his doubt is a sign of something that is very real and very faithful and very common? What if his doubt is a sign of Thomas's need to go as deep as possible consistent with all of those other encounters with Jesus that we described? What if his doubt is a touchstone of his solidarity, his understanding, his friendship with you and me in our faith? If you accept the conveniently modern view of Thomas schooled in skepticism, then the only part of this story that matters is the part about a body that we thought was dead a little over a week ago and has shown up to be alive. Like that, uh, that book in Christian Apologetics from several years ago by Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone, written as if it was an attorney making an evidential case for the physical resurrection of Jesus and assuming that that case was enough to prove that Christianity is true. Or that still popular inheritor of that same argument by Josh McDowell called Evidence that Demands a Verdict, still in print. Just the title fills you in. Show me the wounds. Make me believe. That might be right. But I just don't think so. You see... Stories of religious leaders raised from the dead were not common in Jesus' time, but they weren't unheard of. And when that story about Lazarus being raised from the dead shows up, Lazarus does not get supernatural status. And in an age of chirogenics, we shouldn't be surprised by all of this. I mean... If Ted Williams came back in 30 years because we found a cure and unfroze him and fixed him and revived him right here in Scottsdale, I would not bow down and call him Lord. You see, mere resuscitation, while notable, is not in itself enough to bear the weight of glory It's not enough to prompt Thomas to say that this Jesus is the Christ of God. To adapt a phrase from C.S. Lewis, we believe in the resurrection like we believe in the sun. 
not because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. Look back at how John tells the story. The disciples were self-quarantined from fear when Jesus appeared among them. But the gospel says more than just that he appeared. The gospel says he appeared among them and said, Peace be with you. Think about the whole story. The lilt of his voice as he turns his head and says, Peace be with you is as much a part of how they recognize him than the presence of a body. That word of peace may be as much evidence of who he is as the contours of his face or the rawness of his wounds. And so when he does show them his wounds, even to our doubting friend Thomas, He does that as part of his giving of peace. And it is then, in the receiving of peace, that they rejoice. Suddenly free, suddenly aware, and finally fully awestruck. The resurrection of Jesus' body can't be severed from what Jesus does. His coming to the disciples is described by words that he says to them and by the gift he gives them and by the charge that he leaves with them. His disciples talk of the resurrection in the same way, not to claim that he is some scientific wonder, but to tell everyone that he has given them peace and that he is still at work in the world Peace be with you, and as I have received peace and been sent, so I send you. If you forgive, the ones you forgive are forgiven. If you linger over and hold on, the sin of others you cling to will be eat them away and eat you as well. In resurrection, there is freedom and hope and forgiveness for them and for you. His resurrection becomes real in the power that he gives them to forgive. This peace that he gives need not be naive. It's not permission to let evil go. But it is power to respond with peace to evil and to make things whole again. Let me say it again. The memory of his spear-wounded side and his nail-pierced hands draw us to him for sure, but the power of his resurrection is in the peace that he gives us, which is also the peace that he asks us to give others. So we now go out freed to free, blessed to bless, alive, to give life. This is the essence of Easter faith, my friends. In the Orthodox tradition, the week after Easter is called Bright Week, when all of the adults who were baptized on Easter morning wear white all week long until they come together the next Sunday. 
It's that same week in the glow of Christ's glory that those once locked down, now freed disciples saw the future. And it's in the warmth of Christ's breath, giving them peace, that their mission began. And it's this that they wanted for Thomas when he finally showed up. My friend David Wood likes to imagine that the reason that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples that previous week was that he was actually out and about searching and looking for Jesus. Now, that's pure speculation, but I like it. Because maybe, maybe Thomas had heard the rumor that Jesus was alive and wanted to join Jesus as Jesus regained his glory and retook the streets. Maybe Thomas didn't realize himself yet what the other disciples also had to learn, that they were now to tell the story and that they were now to do the work and that they were now to heal the world in the power of Christ's spirit that we are now to tell the story and heal the world in the power of Christ's spirit. When he finally does rejoin them, they told him all about it, but he still needed to experience it himself. Maybe it's not because he doubted the story. Maybe he doubted its power. Maybe it's because he doubted connection between the one he remembered and so wanted back and the breath and the peace and the power that was inspiring his friends. Is this one who appeared to you the same one who was tormented and executed and left for dead? Is this one giving you this peace, our Lord? Here you go, Thomas. Here you go. I am the one. My peace is also for you. My peace is not the peace of an angel given for a moment so you won't run away. My peace is the peace that begins at the beginning of all creation and is the peace that bears the pain and the terror and the injustice, and the grief, and the fear, and uncertainty of the world. Here are the wounds. You can touch them. They are being healed, just as I am healing yours. And every one of us can complete the next phrase with Thomas, my Lord and my God. It is about wounds that are no longer bleeding, It is about peace that is breathed on us. It is about power that is given to us to continue the work, even as we search, and even as we wonder, and even as we doubt. And it comes to us even as we doubt. It comes to you when you let your doubt empower you to search and not freeze you in despair. It comes to you when you let your doubt widen your view of life and not shut you down. It comes to you when you touch 
the pain of the world while still receiving and giving true and deep peace, God's peace. This is the kind of doubt, Thomas's doubt, that takes you through the desert of questions to a new, now empowered, now informed, true peace. Commitment to life, commitment to action. So let me say it this way. If it is true that no part of this story, from Palm Sunday through Easter to this encounter with Thomas, if it is true that no part of that story can be separated from any other part, from its glory to its execution to abandonment and fear to resurrection and joy to empowerment and forgiveness and peace and to the risen Christ telling us to tell the world, if none of that can be separated, then we can see that the doubt that Thomas carries through this story is something much deeper than just suspicion on one side or weakness on the other. We can see that his doubt, and maybe even our own, is part and parcel of faith and is a way of challenging our faith, your faith, to go deeper, to unearth more, and to hold the pain of life inside that healing gift of peace. The poet Christian Wyman calls this devotional doubt. It's a complicated world, after all, that we live in. And Jesus was executed a week ago, Friday, and the principalities and powers of the world are still making mischief. We who sing Easter hymns might be deluded, after all. So we might need to touch his hands and see his side and feel his breath to remember it again. For if anything, Thomas helps us get off the idea that there is a clear difference between belief and unbelief. There is space in between where God is very much alive and calling us forward into new life. So learn this from Thomas, if you will. The Spirit wants your restless wonder. The Spirit knows your questions. And the Spirit invites you to explore. Doubt because you sense that there is no little thing to accept God's peace. It's a big thing. And believe because God's peace is given still, eternally revived in resurrection. Peace be with you. Amen.